5, verses 1 to 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of a tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing at the centre of the throne and circled by the four living creatures and the elders. The Lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth." Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousand times ten thousand. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and praise. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be praise and honour and glory and power for ever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Thank you very much. I'm deeply aware that the message today um, can be controversial. I'm not saying that to be controversial, but just simply because the whole issue of for whom did Jesus die? Did he die for an elect group of people or did he die for everyone? Tends to evoke great emotion and feeling in a lot of people. And uh, I'm not sure that one... 30-minute sermon is necessarily going to dislodge people's views, but what I do believe is that it can show the importance of the subject and how, it, how our viewpoint shapes our understanding of the gospel and what's significant about that. So hopefully you received a handout on the way in because that should be helpful. It's got verses there, I think all the major verses that I'll be referring to are mentioned there. And I think before I begin, I'd like to pray. Let's ask God's help. Our Father in heaven, 
You are all holy and wise, all loving and just, full of grace and truth. Guard my lips and guide our hearts as we try to understand for whom your son died. May we not lean on our own understanding. Help us take our bearings from you speaking to us through your word, the Bible. Feed us from heaven today with your word. For you are the only wise God, our Saviour, and to whom be all the glory forever and ever. Amen. I want to begin by saying something that pains me to actually admit this. But if Robert and I are going anywhere, uh, to driving somewhere where we haven't been before, it's almost always better if I drive and Robin navigates. And it's nothing to do with Robin's driving. It's all to do with my navigating. Uh, Google Maps and I have a love-hate relationship. Somehow or other, Robin seems to be able to get the phone the right way around, face in the right direction, so we get where we need to go. Now, you may like to pray for us because, as you've heard, we're going on holidays tomorrow and we're going to hopefully get down to the bottom of Tasmania, to Cockle Creek. I think there might be a... If we could put a map up. Um... Yeah, going from one place to another. And and a map is a really helpful thing because it gives us bearings and coordination. Now, there's a caveat on that. You've got to make sure you have the map the right way up. If If it's not facing the right way, you've got big problems. And that's what I've found with Google Maps. If you have the phone around the wrong way, you're not sure which way you're facing Um, And you need to know the information on the map, the legend. You need to trust the information on the map. Now, let me just use that as an analogy as we approach this subject. Because you might think, okay, this is not a very... uh, doesn't sound like a helpful start to a a meat and three veg sermon, a complex subject. Steve's admission about um, not being the best navigator... But one thing God has taught me through difficulties over the years is the right way to face the map of God's word is towards God, true north. If you can think of the Bible as like a map, the right orientation for approaching scripture is having it facing true north to God. It's God's revelation to us. It's what he says to us. It's not primarily about us and what we can get for ourselves and how this affects me. It does affect us, but we've got to read the map of God's word facing toward God. And my desire today is to look at this subject in terms of giving us three bearing points. First of all, I want to look at what the angels said at Jesus' birth. It seems to me, start with God. If we're going to face towards God, let's see what did he send his angel to say about Jesus and his birth. Then secondly, what did Jesus himself say? 
And then thirdly, what are the angels and the heavenly hosts saying about Jesus' death in heaven? Is there any common theme? Does it line up? So they're the three bearing points. So let's look at Matthew's Gospel, Matthew one twenty one, and see what we're told there that the angel said to Joseph about Mary who was then pregnant. And this is what we read in Matthew one twenty one: She will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. The name Jesus means saviour. And Joseph was told that Jesus was to save his people from their sins. Now just hold two things in mind here. First, the angel doesn't say or imply that Jesus will save everybody. Says he will save his people. Second, those who are Jesus' people, he will save. He will save his people. So it's not just making, about making salvation a possibility. It's about achieving salvation. It's not about a probable thing. It's about something he will do. Jesus can't be the saviour of those who perish. He's the saviour of his people. Now Mark's gospel doesn't say anything about Jesus' birth at all, so not much help there. But in Luke's gospel, the angel who appeared to Mary told her that Jesus would be great and called the Son of the Most High. God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over Jacob's servants forever. His kingdom will never end and that no word from God will ever fail. Luke 2. So he focuses on the fulfilment of prophecy to the Jews as his people. But there's no other real clues here. So next then, let's go to Jesus. We've heard what the angels said about Jesus' birth, what does Jesus himself say? Now Matthew, Mark and Luke record that Jesus told his disciples a number of times, quote, this is from Matthew 20, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and he will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. So no real clues about for whom he will die, just that he will die. And we to- he told them a number of times about the fact that this would happen. In Luke 19, verse 10, for the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save the lost. So we know that Jesus will die for lost people. We know that Jesus will die for his people. Everyone is lost. So who are his lost people for whom he will die? John's Gospel gives us the clearest picture about this. Consider what John records from Jesus' own mouth. John 10, verses 14 and 15. John 10, 14 and 15. 
I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. And my sheep know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Ah. So we've got a lot more information coming from Jesus. He will lay down his life for his sheep. Now just go on a few verses later in the same chapter. John 10 verses 25 to 29. The works I do in my Father's name testify about me. But you do not believe because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish and no one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. Now this is from the mouth of Jesus. This is not my theory. This is not my thinking. This is what Jesus the Saviour is saying. So the picture that's starting to build up here is that the sheep are those who will listen to Jesus. Jesus knows them. They have a relationship. They follow Jesus. He gives them eternal life so that they won't perish. None can pluck them from his hand. And the Father has given them to Jesus. Now all of that he said here, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. Now there's something significant here, just before we move to John 17, that I want to highlight about priests. The, Jewish, um, the Jews had high priests. See if we can put a slide up there, thanks. Hudson? The Jews... The Jewish high priest was an intermediary, if you like, between God and his people. That's how he functioned. And there were two key roles. They had a lot of responsibilities, but the two main responsibilities were to offer sacrifices and to pray. To offer sacrifices and to pray. Particularly on the Day of Atonement, that one day in the year, the high priest would offer the sacrifice and take the blood and bring it in to the holy place and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat and pray and intercede for the people. Now that's significant because in John 17, which is often called Jesus' high priestly prayer, he prays just before he is to die the next morning, the next day. So he's gathered with his disciples and, and this is what he prays in John 17. Now listen to these words of Jesus' prayer, just verses 2 and 3. For you granted him authority over all people that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Now this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So this is, we're able to overhear what the Son is praying to the Father. 
We're given a glimpse within, if you like, the Trinity of what the incarnate Jesus, God the Son, is praying to the Father about the significance of his death. And he says, you've granted him authority, that's the Son, me, over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And then he defines what eternal life is. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus is praying for those that the Father has given him. Look at verse 6. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours. You gave them to me and they have obeyed your word. So Jesus reveals himself to those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. The ones the Father has given him. Verse 9. I pray for them, I am not praying for the world, but for those you have given me, for they are yours. Here's that theme again, for those the Father has given him. Verse 19, Jesus sanctifies himself, he sets himself apart for those given to him by God. For them, that's those the Father has given him, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. So he sets himself apart to God for them, the ones the Father has given to him, so that they too will be set apart to God. Verse 24. Father, I want those you have given me, here it is again, to be with me where I am. And to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you love me before the creation of the world. And he goes on and he prays not only for the ones who, who were with him, his disciples, but for those who will believe in him through their word. So the picture that we're starting to see is not one of Jesus dying indiscriminately for every last person on the planet. He's dying for his sheep. He's, he's, he's out to save his people from their sins. Those the Father has given him, his sheep who will listen to his voice and who will follow him. Now there's one other little clue tucked away in John's Gospel as well. John 11, 49 to 52. And this is where Caiaphas, who's the high priest, and he unwittingly prophesies about the significance of Jesus dying. Roman, uh, John 11, 49 to 52. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, spoke up. He said, you know nothing at all. You do not realise that it's better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So we're starting to see, okay, 
When Jesus dies for his people, it's clearly the primary reference is the Jews, but then it's not just the Jews, it's God's scattered children from all over the nations to bring them together and make them one. Okay, we've looked at the angels, we've looked at what Jesus said in Caiaphas prophesying. Let's look now at Revelation 5, the, the reading that we just heard. The whole focus of this chapter is on the lamb who was slain. So it's a, it's a picture of Jesus who died, who stands before the throne and he's encircled with praise. It's important to see the symbolic connection with Jesus' statements in John's Gospel, written by the same man, John. Jesus had prayed for those the Father had given him in John 17. Here the Lamb is pictured receiving a scroll from the Father that is sealed and which only he can break. He is standing before his Father's throne, receiving the same worship as the Father. Notice what it says, verses 13 and 14. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, so it's to the Father and to the Son, be praise and honour and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. They're worshipping the Son alongside the Father. They're worshipping both. Now what we see in Revelation 5 is the counterpoint to John 17. What Jesus prayed for in John 17 is being pictured as unfolding and coming to pass in Revelation 5. He is triumphed. Look what it says in verse 5. And one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. And that we know is Jesus. He's descended from David. He is able to open the scrolls and the, its seven seals. He has triumphed. He is victorious. He has accomplished it. He has conquered. Then I saw a lamb. Notice it's a lamb, not a lion. It's like the, the picture has changed. So he overcomes like a lion, but he does it as a lamb. As a sheep before it shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Looking as if it had been slain, standing at the centre of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders, the lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into the world. He went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. Now look at what they sing in this new song in verse 9 and verse 10. A new song for a new covenant. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. It doesn't say purchase the world. It says purchase people from, among, 
different tribes and languages and peoples and nations. You have made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We know it can't be everybody because there's going to be hell. Death and Hades get thrown into the lake of fire. The beasts and the false prophets and those who follow them get thrown into the lake of fire. But we're told here that people are purchased. They're ransomed from every tribe and language and people and nation. So it's not just the Jews, it's also the Gentiles. Jesus was indicating that. That's what Jesus was at pains to point out in his ministry, ones the Father had given him from throughout the world. So the conclusion is the hosts of heaven are not singing about a saviour who died for every last person on earth, but for one who has purchased a select group of people, his sheep, those the Father has given him, the scattered children of God from every tribe and language and people and nation. The testimony of Jesus and of the angels and the other heavenly creatures from Matthew to Revelation is about Jesus dying for particular persons. The sheep, John 10, scattered children of God, John 11, those the Father who given him from out of the world, John 17, it is mission accomplished. Jesus has saved his people from their sins. His people. Now, at this point, it is very difficult, if not impossible, to reconcile Jesus' teaching with the popular idea that Jesus died for every last person in history. And all we've done is look at what the angels say, what Jesus said, and what the angels in glory in the heavenly hosts are saying. If we look at Acts and other verses in the New Testament, we... we want to ask ourselves, does that line up with what we've heard about the angels from Jesus and in heaven? Look at 1 Peter 2. 1 Peter 2, just back a little bit from Revelation and verse 24. 1 Peter 2 and 24. He himself that's Jesus, bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray. He died for his sheep. You were like sheep going astray. But now you have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The ones who get redeemed, for who, the ones for whom Jesus prayed, the ones that Jesus prayed because they were given to him by the Father, come to him. And they are redeemed. Look back at chapter 1. Who's the them? Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. 
absolutely consistent with what Jesus prayed in John 17, where he sanctified himself that they too might be sanctified. And there's not just the odd verse here and there. Hebrews 1 verse 3 says, The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word, after he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. After he had provided purification for sins. Now look at Hebrews 9, verses 12 to 15. About what, what do these verses say about how effective the new covenant is? Hebrews 9, 12 to 15. He... Jesus did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. He has obtained something, not made it possible. He's obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death? so that we may serve the living God. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called by God through the gospel may receive the promised eternal inheritance. He died as a ransom to set them free from their sins committed under the first covenant. So he's specifically including Jews and Gentiles under the first covenant which was given to Israel. Now the new covenant that we're discovering is not just for the Jews only but also for the Gentiles. And what Jesus provides for the Jews first and also for the Gentiles is a ransom, a purchase, a cleansing by the power of his blood that reconciles them to God. Colossians 1.22 But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. That's the Father. The Father has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight. Now I just want to pause here and say... What I mentioned before about the map and getting it facing true north, have you noticed in these verses how frequently Jesus and how frequently the writers of the New Testament orientate salvation as primarily a thing between the Father and the Son? He, the Father, has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you wholly in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. We so frequently look at salvation as what's in it for me. 
and almost forget that there's a whole lot going on behind the scenes between the Father and the Son and Jesus is dying for those the Father has given him. So all of this fits with Revelation 5, 9 and 10 where people are purchased, Jesus purchased people for God from every tongue and tribe and nation. Now if you've purchased something, it's yours. You've just got to collect it. You've purchased it. A completed purchase clears the way for you to collect it. If something's on lay-by, it's not until you've made the final payment that you can pick it up. You purchase it and it's yours. That means we're not our own, we're bought with a price. The price is the blood of Christ. He has purchased us for the Father. Those who repent and believe the good news, who hear Jesus' voice and follow him, are purchased by the Son for the Father. Now here's the nub of the issue. Did Jesus succeed in his mission or not? If he did, then everyone for whom he died must be saved because he has purchased their eternal redemption. He's paid their ransom with his blood. He's purified them from all their sins forever. And he's reconciled them to God. And that's what's being celebrated in Revelation 5, the triumph of the Lamb. Or was it only a partial success? Unless we become universalist heretics and believe there is no hell and both the wicked and the righteous go to heaven because Jesus has purchased the redemption of everyone on the planet, then we have to believe that there's a group of people, not all people. Now those on both sides of the question believing that it's a group of people only that are saved will have some view of limitation. Either Jesus died for a limited number of people to save them, actually redeem them, or Jesus died for all people but with limited success because not all believe. Both sides have a view of, that involves limitation. But the evidence that I've tried to put before you is that there is no limitation on the success of what Jesus has accomplished. He's either died for everyone or for all God's elect, for all human beings with limited success, or for those given to him by the Father with perfect success. If Jesus died for every last human being, then he has clearly not purchased them all, because not all are saved. There's a heaven and a hell. So he's not actually succeeded in redeeming them all by his blood. Does this fit with the exuberant praise of Revelation 5? And which view faces true north and gives God all the glory? The one that gives God 
The, the most glory is where we see Jesus achieving his finished work. Those the, the Father has given the Son, the sheep who listen to his voice and he follows them, the ones for whom he prayed. How do we understand John 17 with Jesus' prayer not being for the whole world if he went and died for the whole world? The common objection to limited or definite atonement is that only those who have faith will be saved. Now, I totally agree with that statement, but for different reasons than from what an Arminian would believe. An Arminian believes Jesus died for everyone. Let me put it to you like this. Listen again to what Jesus said in John 6 and verse 44. John 6 and verse 44. This is the words of our Saviour. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. Jesus always speaks of salvation with reference to his Father. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. What about passages like in Acts? When they heard this, they had, Acts eleven eighteen. they had no further objections and praise God saying, so then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. God gives it. Acts 13, 48. When the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and honoured the word of the Lord, and all who were appointed for eternal life believed. All who were appointed believed just what Jesus prayed for. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. So faith isn't something we generate from within ourselves, it's God's gift given to us. So only those who repent and believe the good news can be saved. That means they must be the ones who hear his voice. They're the ones who are given him by the Father. They're the ones for whom Jesus died. Philippians 1.29 For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him but also to suffer for him. It has been granted to you. So even the faith to repent and believe the good news of Jesus is God's gracious gift. It comes through the gospel. The gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. The great Baptist pastor C.H. Spurgeon understood this when he wrote in his classic book of devotions, Morning and Evening, if there be one stitch in the celestial garment of our righteousness which we are to insert ourselves, then we are lost. But this is our confidence. The Lord who began will perfect. He who has done it all must do it all and will do it all. I cannot even put one stitch in the garment of my salvation or it will all unravel. My ability to repent and believe the gospel is by the grace of God.
It is not something that arises from within me as a separate capacity apart from the gospel. When we look at all the available evidence, we conclude that saving faith is the gracious gift of the Holy Spirit to connect elect sinners with Christ from all around the world and reconcile them to God. And it is guaranteed in the gospel. All who receive the good news will be saved. They will come to repentance and faith in Jesus. All boasting is excluded because from start to finish, faith is a gift from the triune God. Only God's elect can and will repent and believe the good news. But those who don't repent and believe will be justly held accountable by God for their sins. Now, what unbelievers contribute to their damnation is their sins. And what believers contribute to their salvation is their sins. The only difference is the blood of Christ ransoms, heals, restores and forgives one set of people, but not the other. Now, to start to wrap this up, we need to see how the word world is used. I can imagine people saying, but what about the world? It says Jesus died for the world. God so loved the world. Let's look at these passages. Luke 2 verse 1. The Greek in Luke 2 verse 1 is literally, a census should be taken of the entire world. The New International Version inserts the word Roman to clarify that this did not include the Japanese, the Eskimos, Australia's Aborigines, New Zealand's Maoris. The census that was being taken was of the Roman world, but the Greek says a census should be taken of the entire world. Colossians 1 verse 6. In the same way, the gospel is bearing fruit and growing throughout the whole world, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard of it. But Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, was very aware there were heaps of people who hadn't yet heard this good news. The message was growing throughout the whole world, but I'm sure Australia's Aboriginals hadn't heard it at that stage. Or the Japanese, or the Maoris. He's saying it's growing everywhere, all over the place, lots John 1 verse 10, the world did not know him, but some clearly did believe in him. It can't mean every last person without exception. John 12 19, the world has gone after him, but, but not everybody went after Jesus, the Pharisees didn't. The Sadducees didn't. But it says... The world has gone after him. It's like saying, why don't you tell everybody in the world about this? And it's our hyperbolic way of saying, um, yeah, this is meant to be between us and you're blabbing it around and every man and his dog's hearing about it. But we don't mean that it's every last person on the planet. 1 John 2.15, this is a really important one one that's often quoted as supporting universal atonement. But look at it in its context. 
1 John 2 verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in him. The whole world is under the control of the evil one. But there are many true believers in the world who are obviously not under Satan's control. So I'm just trying to highlight some verses that show that the word world does not necessarily mean every last person on the planet who has ever lived. It reveals that we've got to understand the New Testament is revealing a divine mystery. The elect of God are not just Jews, but also Gentiles. But not every last Jew, and it's not every last Gentile. Not all who are of Israel are Israel. The thing about the gospel is it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. So 1 John 2 verse 2, this is the verse I meant that is used, often used for, to justify universal atonement. 1 John 2 verse 2. He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. And not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. And someone says, there you go. But what's it saying? He, Jesus, is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Who's writing this? John. Who is he? A Jew. So he's saying Jesus has not only atoned for the sins of the Jews, Jewish believers like the disciples and apostles, and not only for ours, Jewish believers, but also for the sins of the whole world, Gentile believers. If, if it's every last person who's ever lived, how do you reconcile it with John 17? And Jesus not praying for the world. And it's his sheep. And he gives his life for his sheep. There's a fundamental incompatibility. World here is best understood as meaning God's loving provision for his elect from all over the world. Not just from among the Jews, but Eskimos, Aborigines, people from Africa, you name it. Jesus' atoning death on the cross was for a world full of people. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, not just the Jews. But it doesn't mean every last person. If it means every last person, then Jesus has taken away their sins. He has purchased them. He's redeemed them. But clearly not all are saved. The only ones that can be saved are those who come to him and believe, who are given by the Father. So as we wrap it up, think about natural birth. We've just witnessed this firsthand in our family. Our, our daughter, Laura, has just got a five-week-old. Before little Eli arrived, they purchased a cot, they purchased a bouncer net, you name it. Well, in fact, they were given nearly it all clothing, you name it. They made preparation. Everything was made ready. So when Elijah arrived, everything was there that was needed. God does that for those that he's appointed to eternal life. Everything they need to believe will be provided. 
So Jesus, and you can read in the book of Revelation, he who is thirsty, notice that's the only qualification, thirsty, come. He who is hungry, come. Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, come. And you will be satisfied. You will receive salvation. Jesus' blood has been shed for you because the Father has given them to the Son. The Son has sanctified himself for them. The Spirit is at work to make preparation and draw them to the Son to reconcile them to the Father. So there's a hunger and a thirst in them. There's a desire in them to be saved. It's ludicrous to think that a non-elect person would die wanting to be saved. The only reason the enemies of God get reconciled to God is when they repent and believe the good news, when they see, oh, I've sinned against God. That's the Spirit opening their eyes. That's new birth starting to happen. So what difference does it all make? The difference it makes is that God is sovereign. His election breeds heartfelt worship, humble confidence in God, a willingness to sacrifice for the gospel. Look at the end result. I've tried to sum it up. This I've just run out of time. The, the end result, these sorts of things. Jesus died to purchase and redeem his sheep, his people, his elect, from among the Jews and the Gentiles all around the world. Jesus' sheep scattered all over the world will hear his voice and follow him, predestined from both Jews and Gentiles. Election, predestination is God's prerogative, not mine, not ours. We don't know who the elect are. The effect is to make the gospel sure and certain for God's people. We don't know who they are. We go in the confidence that God has got his people. And so we proclaim the gospel indiscriminately to one and all. We have been told to go, make disciples of all nations by preaching the gospel to the Jews first, also to the Gentiles, and God receives the praise and the glory from beginning to end, from first to last. I have not contributed anything to my salvation, and yet I have repented and believed the gospel but it is only by God's grace that I have been able to do that. J.I. Packer famously summed up the gospel as God saves sinners. God, not we ourselves, saves, not makes salvation possible, but actual. He saves sinners, evil, wicked, hell-deserving rebels, whom he sovereignly elects to repent and believe the good news and be covered by the blood of his son. Why he hasn't chosen everyone, you might like to ask the Lord in heaven. I cannot answer that. I am not God. But do you know that Jesus died for you? Do you believe that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of the sins of many? Do you count yourself amongst the many? Do you believe that he shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins so you can be reconciled to God? And the Spirit will work in your heart a testimony 
affirming and encouraging and the witness of the Spirit will be, yes, Abba Father, you are my God. You are my Redeemer. Blessed be your name. And it will be just like Revelation 5. To you be all the glory and praise and power for you have redeemed people from amongst all the nations to magnify your name. Let me pray. Lord our God and Father, to you be all the glory for our salvation. We praise you for the perfect work of your Son Jesus on our behalf. His life, his teachings, his miracles as signs of proof and of your calling, his death and burial and resurrection and ascension to heaven to reconcile to you those you had given him, your sheep from all around the world, your scattered children from every nation, elect from among all the nations on earth. Praise be to you for your all-sufficient predestined plan providing everything we need to live a godly life from beginning to end, from life's first cry to its final breath. Thank you for such a great salvation. Will you please strengthen and encourage us, Lord, to share this good news? May we not sit on it as if we have somehow deserved it, as if we've contributed anything to merit it, To you be all the glory. When we were without hope and without God in the world, Lord, you saved us. Not by our own faith or works, but by the gift of your Son and the deposit of your Spirit in our hearts, working what is well-pleasing in your sight, granting us faith and repentance. Thank you, Lord. We are humbled and ever so grateful. Please help any of us here for whom this is a hard message, an almost unswallowable word. Grant patience to work it through, to chew it over, to digest Jesus' own words, the angels' words, to digest the testimony of of the heavenly host, to look at the evidence of the New Testament and ask ourselves, are we amongst these people? Is there enough evidence in our hearts and lives that we believe in Jesus, that his blood was shed for us? Grant us encouragement. Bend our wills to your will. We repent of any idea, Lord, that that we are sovereign to ourselves, that we are the makers and masters of our own destiny and we will choose and we will do what pleases us. We know, Lord, when everyone does what's right in their own eyes, it's mayhem. But when your will is done on earth as it is in heaven, that is shalom. That is peace and salvation. Grant us encouragement. Help us, we pray, to honour your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.